Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Man, let's open this morning to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. I'm not starting an entire series in 2 Timothy this morning. Uh, we just finished 1 Timothy two weeks ago. Last week we had a special sermon. I know it was everyone's favorite on the topic of giving faithfully as a local church. And um, I said last week I should have preached before the offering or we should have done the offering after the message. This week, you know, as you leave, the offering plates go by and uh, you just feel so convicted in your seat to give to the Lord more. There's uh, a nice little gray box in the lobby. You can drop your little envelope down in there. I, I meant to tell Matt to give us a little mini sermonette before the, the offering time today, but let's remain faithful in our giving. Uh, it looks like a good month so far, but uh, let's not look at those numbers and say, well, I can just lay off. Be faithful in your giving. Be faithful to the Lord. Be obedient to how he's called us to worship him in that way. Um, I don't have to tell you that the world around us is in chaos. And you can turn on the news, you can turn on your radio, you can scroll through social media, and you can see that um, no one in the world is operating from what we call a Christian worldview. No one in the world, unbelievers, are not sitting around asking, does this thought or does this opinion, does this feeling, does this trend, does this mindset, does this whim... Does it conform to God's word? The world does not care if it conforms to God's word. Sinners, unbelievers do not care if their thoughts and opinions and feelings and attitudes compare or stand up to God's word. They, they have no care for what God's word says or what God's truth speaks about a certain matter. And of course, when we as Christians say we believe this is the word of God, we follow it, we obey it, and you should too, we're labeled bigots or uh, haters or um, arrogant, that we have a corner on truth and no one else is right. We say Jesus is the only way to heaven. And someone would say, well, how can you say that? What about this person or this religion or this worldview? And because we stand on the truth of God's word as our foundation, we're labeled in those ways. And the world sees us in those ways. But you don't have to look far into the world's life into the life of unbelievers, into the lives of those around you, into the culture and the society at large, you don't have to look far before you begin to see what those shaky foundations do in the world, what those shaky foundations do in the lives of those who have rejected God's word, who do not obey God's word, who do not believe God's word. And I'm not saying we Christians have it all together either. We certainly are not as obedient as we should be. We certainly are not as firm on God's word as we should be in every area of our life. That's why we have church. That's why we come together to be taught and to be edified and to be encouraged. And sometimes we come together to be criticized. We come together to be judged 
by God's word. Earlier in the, in the sermon, or in the service today, we read from Hebrews chapter 4, we saw that God's word is like a light, a sword that pierces and divides us and tears us apart so that it may examine us and test us. It is a light that shines on us and exposes our very nakedness before the Lord. And so when we ask a question, what do we believe? When a world unbeliever, sinner, asks the question to themselves, what do I believe? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who is God? What is God? What religion, if any, is true? What holy book, if any, is true? Which one do I follow? Which one do I obey? We have those big questions all of us do in life. The whole world faces those, what we call those big questions. And here's the thing, we're all answering them one way or another. Some people like to say when we're confronted with theology, when we're confronted with biblical doctrine, some Christians, uh, even Christians, will say, well, I don't know about that. I'm not a theologian. I don't know about that. I'm not a theologian. I'm not, I didn't go to seminary. I didn't go to Bible college. I don't know how to, ta- I don't know how to think through those things. I think it was R.C. Sproul who famously said, everyone is a theologian. Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a thought about God and themselves and the world and salvation and heaven and hell and death and truth. Everyone has a thought on those things. Everyone is a theologian in that way. The question is whether your thoughts about God and the world and yourself and eternity are true or not. Are those thoughts and the way you're answering those questions founded in eternal ancient truth Or are you just following the whims of your own imagination, your own feelings? I just think, I just feel, I just heard, I've always learned. We must compare everything to the truth of God's word. And we must hold it up as the standard, as our statement of faith says, to which all other thoughts, creeds, and religious opinions are to be tested and tried. That means what you believe That means what your parents believed. That means even what Mama and Papa believed. We must compare it all to what the scripture says and ask, what has God said? And I was thinking last night, whenever I think of scripture, whenever I think of the authority of the Bible, I think of the question, who says? Or maybe, says who? You tell me I should live this way. You tell me this is who God is, this is who Christ is, this is what heaven and hell is, this is wrong, this is right, this is sinful. Who says? Says who? And I immediately think of that scene in A Christmas Story when all the kids are gathering there at the flagpole, it's out in the cold, and one of the the best lines in the whole film that it's kind of passed over is one kid says to the other, you're full of beans and so is your old man. And the other kid says, oh yeah, says who? Says who? It's the quintessential question of humanity. It's the quintessential question of childhood. We had Daniel, little Daniel with us a little bit last night. He's a lot like his daddy in this way. And um, I've never had a kid ask the question why with quite the authority and assertiveness as Daniel. My kids say, why? why?" You know, they're really inquisitive. You tell Daniel something, why? 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 I don't know. You get to the end of it, you're like, I don't know, because, because, Jesus, God, I don't know. That is the quintessential question of growing up, of learning, of maturing. It's also the quintessential question that shows the rebellion of the human heart to God. 
Says who? Who are you to tell me how I should live? Who are you, God, to tell me what truth is? Who are you to judge me, God? That part of growing up, that part of maturing that causes us to ask why and who says is something, sadly, that many of us, even as Christians, never quite grow out of. Certainly the world says who? Who says, Christians? Who are you to tell me what is right and what is wrong? Who are you to tell me what is truth? Who are you to tell me that Jesus is the only way to heaven? But our entire faith as Christians is based on the fact that someone at some time has said something, right? Our entire faith is based on the fact that God has spoken. And without that, we don't have a faith. Now, I might shock you this morning after talking so much about the Bible and saying the Bible alone, Scripture alone, I might surprise you to tell you that God has spoken to us in three ways. The first of which is in creation itself. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, God tells the Apostle Paul and tells us everything that can be known about God is there in the things that he has made. It's there. It's visible. It's all around us all the time in the fact that there is something. It tells us that there must have been a cause to this something. Now, Paul goes on to say that this isn't enough to save us, though. It's just enough truth to condemn us. Even though the glory of God is there in the world, Paul says, we've turned away from God and we worship the creation rather than the creator. In other words, we've stopped short. We look at creation, we look at the glory around us, we look at ourselves, and we end up focusing our worship there rather than on the one who it reveals. So God has spoken to us in creation, in what he has made, and it testifies to him, although it is not enough to save someone. God has spoken to us in his word, the Bible, which we're going to talk about this morning. But God has ultimately spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, to whom the Bible and all of scripture points. God has revealed himself to us in these ways, and today we're going to look at just that one, that we believe in the Bible. And to say that phrase, even just to say the simple phrase, we believe in the Bible, We as Christians believe in the Bible is a claim of authority. It's a claim of truth. And it demands submission and obedience. In other words, we as Christians answer the question, who says, says who, with God says. God has spoken. For us as individuals, for us as a church, for the entire race of humanity, for the entire universe, God has spoken. The question really this morning is, are we obeying? Look briefly at 2 Timothy 3.16. Another all-important 3.16 in the Bible. We're not going to look at this as an exegetical outline today. We're just using this as sort of a, a springboard to understand what the Bible is. Paul says to Timothy, again, remember, the young pastor, Ephesus, we just went through that series, and he's encouraging him, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and training in righteousness. So as we look at this question today, or this, this, this series, the beginning of this series, what is the Bible? We believe in the Bible. I just want to answer that with two, two primary answers. What the Bible is and what the Bible does. What the Bible is and what the Bible does. Let's start with what the Bible is. Very simply put, as you can see on our own statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, God has revealed himself in the Bible. The Bible is God's revelation for everyone. Listen, not just you as a Christian, not just as someone who believes the Bible. It is God's revelation for you, but it is God's revelation of himself to everyone, regardless of whether or not they believe it or buy into it at all. It is God's truthful revelation of himself for his people and for all people. And there is no rival, there is no equivalent, there is no other holy book or no other so-called scripture that measures up to the authority and the power of the Bible. We do not believe that the Quran reveals truth about God. We believe that it can reveal some truth, but that that truth belongs not to Allah, but actually to the one true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not believe the Vedas of Eastern religion reveal ultimate truth to humanity. They're deceptive. They lead people astray. We do not believe the Book of Mormon or any other holy book or so-called scripture reveals God truly and plainly and fully to anyone. But we believe the Bible does just that. And the Bible claims that for himself, itself. And ultimately, we see that the Bible gives this universal answer to who God is, to what truth is, to what salvation is, to what heaven and hell are. Now, if you pay attention as we go through this series, what we believe, we're going to be looking at these various aspects of Christian doctrine. But unless we start here with what the Bible is and what the Bible does, we have no foundation or standing point for any of the rest of the stuff we're going to say. In fact, every time we come in here over the next 10 or so weeks to look at what we believe... We're going to be saying, why do we believe this? Turning your Bible to this passage, turning your Bible to that passage, as we do each and every single week. Baptist faith and message says that the Bible is God's revelation of himself to man. It is totally true. It is our standard for life. It is our standard for doctrine. And it points us to Jesus Christ. And this demands from us, listen, obedience And it demands obedience from every single human being that's ever walked the face of the earth. What the Bible is, three words today, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. When we speak of what the Bible is, we must talk about its inspiration, its inerrancy, and its infallibility. If you don't leave here with anything else, at least remember those three words. Circle them, highlight them, write them down, bold them, whatever you need to do. Inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility. Let's talk about the first word, inspiration. The Bible is inspired. When we say in our statement of faith that we believe the Bible is God's word, it's God's revelation of himself to man, written by men, divinely inspired by God. When we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and we see all Scripture is breathed out by God. Your translation might say, God breathed. Your translation might just keep the old word, inspiration. It's not a bad word as long as we define it correctly. Inspiration. The original language is a combination of two words. You know these words if you think about it. Theos, which is God. 
theology, theos, that's God. And the other word is pneuma or breath. We think of pneumonia or pneumatic disorder. We're talking about something with the lungs, something with our breathing. comes from this word, pneuma, spirit, wind, or breath. And so Paul just puts those two words together, and we have this wonderful word, theopneustos, which means breathed out by God, or literally, God breathed. The word inspiration can kind of make it sound like we're talking about a Bob Ross painting. You know, and he's painting a happy tree and a secret bush and all these things, and, and it's inspiring to us. And so when we think about the inspiration of Scripture, we might think that it just inspires us. That's not what it means. It means that every part of Scripture has been breathed out and given by God. Now, our statement of faith says it is written by men. And that might confuse some of us because we've always heard it's written by God. The author is God. It's God's word. And, of course, he is the ultimate author. But we don't want to take away the human agency here. That's what inspiration is all about. It wasn't dictation. It wasn't that God took over their hands and they were just, you know, kind of doing this as they wrote their, their letters and their, their pieces of Scripture. No, God was breathing through them as they wrote. So it's not God's word despite the human authors. It's not God's word merely by the human authors. But as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, men spoke from God, listen, as they were carried along by the Spirit. Interesting, that New Testament word for spirit is the same word for wind, breath, pneuma. They were carried along by the very Spirit and the wind and the breath of God himself. This is what inspiration is. That the Bible is God's revelation of himself, written by men who were being carried along by the very Spirit of God. And so when we say the word inspiration... We're not just talking about the general meaning of Scripture. A lot of people might agree with that. The general meaning of Scripture is God's Word. Or the parts, some parts and other parts are inspired by God, but not others. We believe in what is called plenary verbal inspiration. Two words that just simply mean this. Plenary means absolute or all. All Scripture has been breathed out by God. The absolute total of Scripture has been breathed out by God. And we believe that that total, all inspiration is verbal. In other words, down to the very words. Not just the general idea. Not just the big picture. Not just the themes. Not just parts and other parts. But all of Scripture, down to the very words, have been breathed out and given to us by God. Jesus quotes the Pentateuch as the word of God, the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from the Psalms and the Proverbs and the prophets as the word of God. The apostles cite from nearly every Old Testament genre, and you'll see them go back and forth between God says, the Spirit says, or maybe sometimes Moses and David. And sometimes they just mix them all up, as Peter does on the day of Pentecost. It shows you what Jesus thought about the Scriptures. It shows you what the apostles thought about the Scriptures. They weren't just old, dusty books that were written by old, dead people that don't mean anything anymore. Yes, David wrote. Yes, Abraham or Moses wrote. Yes, the authors of the prophetic books wrote, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. They wrote... 
but they were riding as they were carried along and breathed upon and breathed through by God himself. So that takes us to the next word, inerrant. The Bible is inspired, it's breathed out by God, and therefore it is inerrant. Our statement of faith, if you look at it, says it has God for its author and truth without any mixture of error for its content. Because it is God-breathed, because it comes to men from God, we can say with certainty that it is completely true. It's good news for you today. The, the battles in the Baptist circles in the past over the inerrancy of Scripture, the conservative resurgence of the 70s and 80s, and the tensions in our own state and the conventions in our own state over the inerrancy of Scripture, really, really come down to this question of authority. Has God said or has he not said? Are Paul's words Scripture just as much as Jesus' words? Or are we to pit them against one another? It's a question of authority. Inerrancy is a question of authority and a question of trust. We believe this is good news for the church. The inerrancy of Scripture, that it's truth without any mixture of error, is not some legalistic binding doctrine on the church. It's a freeing doctrine for the church because we don't have to sort through the Scriptures and figure out which parts are God's Word and which parts are man's Word. Where's Paul's opinion? Where's the Word of God? No, we just take the whole thing and say this is God's Word and we can preach it freely and openly and with confidence and boldness knowing that as we preach this book and every word of this book, we are preaching God's inspired breathed out word that is truth without any mixture of error. Amen. The opposite is also true. If it is God-breathed, but it is not completely true, then the question falls to us, well, who's mistaken? Was God mistaken? Was Paul mistaken? Was God in error, or was it Moses that was in error? And what does that mean for the book we hold in our hands today? Can we trust it, or can we not? And who is the judge of what we can and cannot trust? I think you'll find that in churches and denominations and movements that have abandoned the inerrancy of Scripture you'll find that their interpretation of Scripture just so happens to always perfectly coincide with the popular opinions of the day. And so once you abandon the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, and you have the Bible as just this sort of generally good moral book of sayings that has some good stuff in it and contains the words of God, even if it's not completely the Word of God, you have churches and movements and denominations that move into that, then very quickly, when society moves beyond what we might consider a traditional view of marriage, or a traditional view of gender, or a traditional view of sexuality, when the society and the culture around us move beyond that, guess what those churches are able to do? Oh, well, that was Paul's opinion and that was Jesus' opinion. They were mistaken. That was the first century. They didn't know any better. We've moved beyond that now. So we can take the general teachings of the Bible and leave that stuff behind and move on with our own versions of gender and sexuality and the world and culture and so on. 
Nothing could be more blatantly opposed to what the Bible claims for itself. That's why evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing Christians say, don't care what the world says. We don't care what the culture says. We don't care what society says. We don't care what popular opinion is or isn't at any given time. We don't care what's considered the wrong side of history or not. We'll just stick to the Bible. We'll just hold to God's word over man's word. Amen? Because we believe this comes from God and every part of it is to be embraced as God's holy word. So the good news for you is that there's an unchanging, unshakable, solid foundation for you here, if you want it. You want an unshakable, immovable, solid foundation for your life? In the midst of all the changes in your life, in the midst of your circumstances and sufferings, and all the changing whims of the culture and the world around us, you want something solid to stand on? Then embrace the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture because the other end of that is to say, it's, it's not inerrant, it's not God's word. And then the question is, well, where's your foundation? Where are you laying your foundation? The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy formed in uh, 1977 or 78 was a sort of conference of the, the biggest thinkers in the evangelical world. And it was called upon to put out a statement that defines what we believe and what we mean when we say inerrancy. And this is just the general thesis statement of the entire statement. You can go look this statement up online. You can find it for free. It's not long. It contains a lot of affirmations and denials and a general statement about what Bible-believing so-called evangelical Christians believe about the inerrancy of Scripture. And here's what the statement ends up saying as the thesis. Inerrancy means... That when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm. Whether that has to do with doctrine, morality, or with the social, physical, or life sciences. There's something important to understand about inspiration and inerrancy, and that is to go back to inspiration and understand that this is God working through human authors. It is not God dictating to them or robotically using them to write. He is working through them and by them. Listen, as they, the human authors, write their feelings, their heart, their observations with their vocabulary and their grammar... God is nevertheless, by his spirit, working through them to ensure that what they wrote was his very word. So, for instance, when the Bible uses words like the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, we, of course, in the 21st century know that the sun does not actually rise and the sun does not actually set, right? But the human authors, writing from their understanding, their feelings, their interpretation of the world, their observations, God did not reveal to the psalmist that the universe or that our solar system was centered around the sun. He didn't feel the need to reveal that to them. So they wrote what they saw. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. It's not untrue, it's their observation of what went on around them. Same thing in the battle of Ai when the sun supposedly stood still in the sky. 
We understand that the sun is not moving and the sun did not stand still. But Joshua, from his understanding of the universe and the solar system, as limited as it was, because God is not unveiling all that for Joshua, what does he simply mean? God made the day longer so that the battle could go on longer. That's the miracle. We take what the scripture affirms, we take the message of what it is saying, and understand that these men are writing from their vantage point and their observations with their vocabulary, their thought, and their brains. Even as God is the one breathing through them the words as they write. The biblical authors are not writing with absolute scientific language. They are writing things as they observe them, as they see them, and they are nevertheless true. Remember that these men, as they write with their words, their thoughts, their opinions, their observations, are writing from God. And if that is the case, and what they are writing is not from themselves, and it's not from their own whims, their own imaginations, then you today are not left to the whims and the imagination of the culture and the society around you. Listen, you as individuals are not left to figure this out for yourself. When asked big questions about who God is and what truth is and what salvation is, Nobody in the Bible expects you to answer that question yourself. Your feelings being brought into it don't really matter a whole lot to what the truth is. Your opinion on things being brought into the matter don't weigh a whole lot on what the truth is. And that might sound binding to you, that might sound legalistic to you, but on the other end it's very liberating because I don't have to figure this out for myself. God has revealed it for us. God has shown it to us. I wonder today if you feel the weight of that claim. That this is God's very breathed out word. And that every single part of it is completely true. There's a weight to that claim on you. There's a weight to that claim on our church. There's a weight to that claim for our world. Well, you look around and you see things in such chaos and such turmoil and such confusion. You have to ask the question, where's the foundation? Where's the world built their foundation? Where has your non-believing co-worker or family member, or child or parent or family member, whatever it is, where has your lost relative, the lost loved one, placed their foundation? Where is it? And then you can ask, is that a solid foundation or is it not? Rather than submitting to the voice of God and his truth and his word, oftentimes we submit to our own word, the word of our culture, the word of our world, and ultimately we're submitting to the very word of Satan. And I want you to understand this morning that this isn't just out there. It's easy for us to come into church and to sing the songs and listen to scripture and hear the preaching and say yes and amen and I believe that and I agree with that and, and think that we are in complete agreement with God's word and what is being said. But how often does the culture of what's out there and their questioning of truth and their questioning of scripture and their questioning of God, how often does that seep into our own thinking? To where as we think about doctrine, we're reading our Bibles and we come across something that we haven't seen before or haven't thought of before. 
Or maybe we were taught a completely different way growing up that doesn't seem to be in line with what the Bible actually says about a doctrine or a topic. How about in the life of your family? When you say, we believe the Bible, what does that look like in your family? Does your response to truth reveal that you think this is God's word? Does your response to truth in your family reveal that you have taught your family that this is God's word? Or is there something else there? You ask 10 different people in the world what they think about God or Jesus or heaven or hell or whatever the big question is. And I guarantee you nine times out of 10, maybe more, maybe, maybe 10, maybe 100% of the time, their answers about those big questions are going to start one of these ways. I think, right, I feel, I heard, I learned. We as Christians cannot base our, our, our version of truth on that. We, we do not begin with the Christian faith saying, I feel. We don't come in here so confidently in God and what he's done for us through Jesus Christ and how he's revealed himself through his word. We don't come into a place like this and say, why are we here? Well, because I just feel or I just think or I just heard that this is true. What do we say? We believe. We believe what God has said. Who is God? What has God said God is? What is salvation? What has God said salvation is? What is the Bible? What has God said that his word is? If this is the very breath of God, if these are his very words, then we can say where this speaks, God speaks. And the question for us would be one of obedience. Lastly, in this list of what the Bible is, is the word infallible. And this is sort of a bridge from what the Bible is to what the Bible does. If we take inspiration, that the word of God is breathed out by God, and that it's inerrant because it's truth without any mixture of error, because it comes from God, and then we begin to answer the question, how does it work? Okay, that's what it is. It's God's very words, the breathed out word of God without error. How does it then work? Well, the word infallibility means that it cannot and will not fail. That's what infallible means, incapable of failing. Because this is God's word, God's voice, God's truth, it's not just that it won't fail. That's one thing. It's that it cannot fail. Listen, listen, both in terms of revealing truth, and also in terms of accomplishing God's will. As it reveals truth to us, because it is God's breathed out word without any error, we say it is infallible. In fact, the infallibility is the the heading on the other two. Because it cannot fail, we know it's inerrant. Because it cannot fail, we know that it has come from God. Right? So it reveals God's truth to us, infallibly, without fail, But listen, it also accomplishes God's will without fail. Isaiah 55, 11, you all know this verse. God says to the prophet, my word will not return to me void, but it will accomplish 
Do you believe this? It will accomplish that which I've sent it out to do. Now you say, well, I just witnessed to someone last week. I have been telling my mom or dad or whoever it is about Jesus my whole life, and they have not yet listened. And they have not yet believed. And you might be tempted, as some in Romans chapter 9 were tempted, to ask Paul, well, has the word of God failed then, Paul? I've been telling these people the truth for so long. I've been preaching to my children. I've been telling my parents about Jesus. I've been witnessing to this lost person, and they haven't been saved yet. Has the word of God failed? We have to understand, as Charles Spurgeon put it, that the same light, the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. And the same word of God that has been given to soften the hearts of some has also been given to harden the hearts of others. And God will accomplish his purposes and his will through his word without fail. And you say, well, how do we know which is which? You don't. We just scatter the seed. We just preach the word. And we leave the rest to God. Trusting that he will do his work, his way, in his time. Because he has said, my word will do exactly what I've sent it out to do. God's word will do God's work. And we don't need to add anything else to it. I have no burden on me week in and week out to to spice things up here. I'm sorry if that that bores you. I'm sorry if there's other churches that you, you, there are other churches you can go to which do spice up and think of new things and they're very creative about it all. And that's great and fine for them. We're just going to trust God to do his work as we simply preach the word of God. That's what we're going to do. I told you this before. I've told you this again. I'll tell you this till the day I die probably. I'm not called to be creative. I'm called to be faithful. And so are you as a church to the word of God. I don't know who said this. For the life of me, I've seen this preacher say it and this preacher say it. And you can find quotes from all the preachers online. It's just one of those things that float around. But I like it. So know that it's not original to me. God uses the man of God to preach the word of God to the people of God so that they are conformed into the image of God to the glory of God. That's what God is doing through his word and he will do it without fail. As we preach God's word, he will do his work. Spurgeon said, I don't have to defend the Bible. Spurgeon said, I don't have to defend the Bible. That's like saying that you have to defend the lion. Just let the lion out of the cage and it will defend itself. That's the word of God. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing down to the division of our very souls. The word of God is living and active. So that's what the Bible is. Breathed out by God, inspired, without error and errant, and it cannot fail. Infallible. So what does the Bible do? Three words here. Application sufficiency, and authority. Applying what Scripture says in all of life, trusting that it's enough for those things, and it has the right to govern those things. Every society has founding documents, right? They should. 
Societies have charters, magna cartas, constitutions. Tells us who they are, tells us who we are, what our rights are. It dictates the roles of society. In our case in America, it dictates the roles of different branches of government. Dictates what the state does, what the people do, who the agencies are. There's governing documents for all of that. We have the Constitution. And the question for every society, we seem to be here in America now, is, is what's, what good are those documents if we don't follow them? What good are those founding, identifying, governing documents if they're not followed and obeyed? And you could say the same is true of Scripture. It is our founding, governing document. And you can, un- listen, you can understand it rightly. You can know all the stuff. You can do three-hour Bible studies a day. And it means nothing to you. Without, number one here, application. Statement of faith says that the Bible is the supreme standard by which human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions are to be tried. The scripture has the right to govern our thoughts, to govern our actions, because, listen, it's the outflow of what it is as God's word. If God is the creator of all things, and he gets to set the rules and the agenda for all things, and he says he has done that in his word, then we take his word at his word and say, it has the right to bind us. It has the right to tell us what to do and how to behave. That's application. James 1.22 says it this way, be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know what that is? That's application. That's moving beyond hearing, moving beyond learning and knowing as crucial as those are, foundational as those are, and it's moving into the doing. And without that crucial step, following a right understanding of Scripture, our right understanding of Scripture means nothing. We can understand it rightly. We can know doctrine rightly. We can know the Bible rightly. But if we don't do anything with it, then we're not doing anything rightly. 2 Timothy 1.13, uh, chapter before where we started today, Paul tells Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. So where's the foundation? The sound words. How did you hear them? From me, I taught you. There's what the Bible does, and it's teaching, it's informing, and now what do we do with it? Well, now you need to follow what you've seen me do. Uh, same thing happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So where's the foundation? The revelation of God through Christ to Paul. Now what do we do with that? We imitate it. We learn what it is, and then we behave accordingly. That's application. And for Paul, the doctrine always leads to application. Here is truth, now what do I do with it? In big words, we go from orthodoxy, right belief, to orthopraxy, right practice or right living. I teach truth, I live truth. I learn truth, I behave according to the truth. And this is always God's pattern of revelation. Think about Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. God says to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's a statement of doctrinal, certain truth. Do you know what comes after this in Exodus chapter 20? 
the Ten Commandments. We have a foundation of who God is and who they are, truth, doctrine, theology, followed by what to do with it. I am the Lord your God, therefore we have the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, starts with the foundational doctrinal cry of all of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Theology, doctrine, truth. What follows that? Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Paul does this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter, chapters 1 through 11 is theology. Go read it. It's, it's a huge theological piece on salvation, Romans 1 through 11. What God has done for us in Christ, what salvation is, what justification is, how God is sovereign in his purposes of election. And then we come to chapter 12, and he answers the question, now what do we do with it? And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, I beg you, brothers, because of all of the mercies of God that I've just enumerated in the first 11 chapters, now give your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. There's truth and there's application. In light of God's mercy, live this way. So the goal and the end of all preaching, of all teaching, of all learning, of all study, should not just be knowledge, but it should be knowledge worked out in life. We must acknowledge inspiration. We must acknowledge inerrancy. We must acknowledge infallibility. But then we have to ask the question, so what? What for my life? What for my family's life? All that's good and true and wonderful, good theological knowledge, but now what do I do with it? Now maybe that's you here today. Maybe, listen, maybe you've been in church all your life. You know all the stories, you know all the stuff. You might say, I've always known it, seemingly. Maybe you've even heard of an inspiration and inerrancy before, and you've had those conversations, and you know those doctrines front and back, but you've never really asked the question of yourself, so what? For my heart, for my life, for my family, at work, in my church, for my beliefs, for my feelings, you've never taken the knowledge and asked, so what, for all of this? And I might put before you this morning that that could say that you are either just saved and confused, we need to grow and mature and learn, but it might also mean that you are unsaved, that you've had a head knowledge of all the right stuff your whole life, but you've never thought what it means for you personally. And the question, no matter which side you're on, is today, are you willing here and now not just to acknowledge that it is truth, but to submit to it. As you hear the word today, are you willing to now do the word and submit yourself to the word? Because, our next word, it is sufficient. Paul says the word of God is breathed out. It's profitable. Verse 17, what is it profitable for? To make the man of God, some versions say complete, some versions say perfect. The ultimate meaning of what Paul is saying is because this is God's word, it is absolutely sufficient to make you able to do what you were called to do in Christ. It is sufficient for what God has called you to do. 
Peter says it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that it contains all things pertaining to life and godliness. The Bible contains, listen, not everything about God, not everything about life, but it contains what is necessary for godliness and for life. And this is one of the key hallmarks of false teaching. You know when you're dealing with false teaching because of this. There's a rejection of the sufficiency of Scripture. And a false teaching or a false system or a cult or a splinter or sect will say, yes, the Bible is good as long as, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, as long as you read the Bible in conjunction with the watchtower and what the governing body says. For the Mormons, the Bible is the word of God as long as it's accompanied by the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the ongoing teachings of the church. For the Roman Catholic Church, yes, the Bible is the word of God as long as it's accompanied by the tradition of the church and the magisterial teachings of the church and the papacy itself. You know you're dealing with false teaching when you say, yes, the Bible is good, but the Bible is completely and absolutely sufficient in and of itself to teach you and to guide you in everything that is necessary for life and godliness. It's what we mean when we say sola scriptura. We read other books. We read commentaries. We read Bible studies. We listen to other teachers and preachers. You're listening to one today, but only as they are derivatives of God's one truth in the Bible. It's why in our statement of faith we say there are creeds, there are religious opinions, but the Bible is the standard against which those things are to be tested. Why? Because it is sufficient for those things. Martin Luther, at the Diet of Worms in 1521, he's on trial for what he thinks is probably his life. And for all he knows, he's going to be arrested and imprisoned and probably burned alive for heresy. And he is given the opportunity to turn away, to recant, to change his mind. One word, revoco, I take it back. That's all he had to say. But Luther stands and says, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture, and not by popes and councils, which have so often contradicted each other. But unless I am convinced by sacred scripture, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. How far have we gotten from that in our own lives? In our churches, not to mention in our world. How far have we gotten from that as denominations that even when shown sacred scripture, even when convinced maybe by the very text itself, we say, yeah, but still, I just think, I just feel, I just want to see. And it answers the question very quickly for us, doesn't it? When you're confronted with truth from God's word, it answers the question, says who? Very quickly. And so often, so many of us answer, says me, rather than, says the Lord. 
And it comes down to this final question of authority. It simply comes down to this question, who or what is Lord of you? And we talked about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a good indicator of who your Lord is, but there's another indicator. What will you do with truth? What is your response to the Bible? When you're sitting in a service like this or listening to sermons like this and you hear the ought to's and the should's and the should not's, do those begin to just raise your hackles and say, man, I, I don't know about that. Who's this got to tell me what to do? Who's that person? Who's this book? Who's this movement? Who is this God that tells me how I ought to live and what I ought to think? There is the question of authority. This is heavy. This is weighty. This is binding. We're talking about obedience and submission and humility. But listen, there's also great comfort here. There's assurance here. Because we know this is the very word of God, breathed out by God, without error, because we trust that it has the authority and the sufficiency to tell us what we ought to do and how we ought to think, we know that there is a solid, unchanging, immovable foundation here. As everything around you changes and will continue to change, as your life changes, some of you have experienced massive changes in the last year, the death of loved ones, the death of family members, your own health, the world around us, sickness, suffering, whatever it is, and all the changes and all the ebbs and flows and trials and sufferings of life, here is a firm foundation for your soul in the truth of God's word. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Grass withers, flower fades. You want to summarize that? Life changes and nothing stays around. But the word of the Lord endures forever. There is security. There is stability for you. There is surety for you. Lastly, you can trust it today because in your obedience and in your submission to the truth, our statement says that this truth has one focus and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Obey, trust, and follow his truth, knowing that he's using his truth to make you more like his son. Do you need a solid rock and a foundation this morning? Here is one. Here is the one. How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your inspired, inerrant, infallible, unchanging word. Help us now to submit ourselves to it, to, in humility, throw ourselves in front of it, and, and to cast all of our opinions and all our thoughts at your feet, and let you be the supreme judge of all things. 
Help us now to find that solid, firm foundation in the truth of God's word as it points us to Jesus. If there are people in here today who do not have that firm foundation in Jesus, may you draw them to faith and repentance even today. Use this word to melt their hearts today. For those of us in here that know you, make us ever more obedient and ever more submissive to your truth as is revealed to us in sacred scripture. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Help us to obey now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.